Hi, and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and joined by security practitioners Chris Kaiser, Killian Engler, and Sean Campbell. In life and in business, budgets are always a problem, and it's been a while since we discussed that issue, so I wanted to revisit it. Wendy Nathers, she retweeted something she wrote a few years back about the security poverty line. And she equated to not having budgets similar to being in poverty. So for instance, some think that having good security is an attitude. And so they equate it to something like auto safety. Well, then you should buy a Mercedes. But if you can't afford the Mercedes of security, you end up relying on third parties or you can't have separate systems for different tasks or you just use old hardware hardware until it breaks or until technology uh, that you're using is so atrocious that you're forced to pay more. And so towards the end of her opinion piece, she suggested that we build security into products and deliver them already secure so that security isn't an add-on luxury. And I'm wondering, what does effective security look like when you're on a tight budget? Hi, this is Killian. When I read that and I was thinking about some of the prompts, given, you know, tight budget constraints and things like that, some of the stuff is almost silly and trivial. I don't think anybody's going to argue that not having a network firewall or endpoint firewall or some type of endpoint AV um, is something you can do without. That's something that's that's common and a given. And given the kind of commodity and even most operating systems offer something built in, that's maybe not the absolute best, but it's still something is layer protection. But further than that, looking at a lot of the attacks that we see uh, and we've seen in the past, I would say that probably a good patch management program would go a long way to helping secure avoiding some of the old and stupid vulnerabilities that are out there that get patched. But we still see people fall victim to, uh, victim to time and time again. That would be maybe the, the first thing that I would do is just kind of take away that low-hanging fruit. Not necessarily worry about the zero days, which are always a concern, but the stuff that's out there that you can address and that there are patches for. This is Chris. I think, and I, I know I've said this before in the podcast, but one of the things I would emphasize, even, even if it's not new hardware or software, I would say knowledge. In a lot of industries where you know the workers aren't themselves well acquainted with best practices in terms of their own security, their own behavior, just smart moves around their own credentials and, and password resets and the proper behavior online, you know, not clicking links you don't recognize, not opening emails you don't recognize. Things that to people in security or in IT that are obvious and, you know, almost an in-joke at this point. To a lot of people who don't have that background, it's something that still needs to be reinforced. And a lot of times, some of the the simplest things can have the biggest effect. The way that Killian said, even even something that's not you know a perfect move is still a step in the right direction. I do think that ensuring that people who work with data, people who have data that's sensitive and, and needs to be protected, understand the ramifications of what they're working with. If people realize, you know, if you use the boss's credit card for something, you got to be real careful and not lose it. They need to see data in the same sense as they used to see, you know, physical things that are, are sensitive or physical things that are important or business critical. This is Sean. Definitely echo one point Chris made about even something as small as not overlooking weak passwords, strong password policy and ensuring that folks are resetting their password is probably the most basic thing you 
can do to educate employees to begin without even making them technical. And then I think over time, as the security landscape changes, companies need to evolve. We hear about a lot of attacks and incidents where legacy systems end up being compromised or vulnerabilities are exposed because they're still running some older system. That goes back to Killian's point about patch management. Thanks, guys. If you're a regular listener and enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our podcasts on Apple Podcasts and your reviews will also help others find us. There's a new report out that says that pen testers are always able to gain admin control of the system they're testing. And it sounds like the pen testers are able to exploit software vulnerabilities and user credentials to gain access. They tried to highlight and put a positive spin that said at least 22% of the intrusions were found within a day. But to me, that number sounds really low. But the important point is that if an intruder isn't detected within the first day, that they'll be in there long enough to do some serious harm. When you think about these pen testers, what do you think companies are doing wrong? Is it the lack of budget, not being able to work with what you have? Because it sounds like the smaller companies are doing just as well as the bigger companies or not understanding how to do more with less. One of the points I do want to make, they mentioned that the complete admin control of the network was generally 67% of the time, about 100, but still not great either, uh, much higher than we'd want it to be. The two points of vulnerability that they mentioned in the article specifically were software and credentials, which are well, one, the ones that I would expect. Old software that has vulnerabilities that aren't patched, software that has known vulnerabilities, they said was, was one of the biggest ways people got in. It wasn't things that were brand new. It wasn't zero-day attacks. I can see why a lot of the companies with smaller budget do just as well as the ones with large budget because you know it's a matter of are you are you patching the vulnerabilities that are out there are you keeping on top of what sort of issues might lead to an intrusion uh, and the second one of course is credentials we mentioned earlier on the importance of changing your password and being more wary of how your credentials are being used that i think again is an education issue it's, it's a lot of times where you know people are putting in passwords where it's still just password or the name of the company or, or something overly simple. Good password practices and good education on that would go very, very far. The reason that I think that the larger companies and smaller companies are kind of almost on equal footing here is if you think about a larger company, it's like trying to turn a giant freight uh, ship in the ocean. It's going to take a lot of time to get it to move and a lot of effort to get it to move. Whereas in some ways, smaller organizations can be a little bit more dynamic, you know, being freed from some of the institutional controls. You know, small shops, they can flip on Windows Update and not have to centrally manage, uh, manage it. Now, necessarily. It's not maybe the best answer, but it's an easy answer. We're patching a handful of servers. While it's a pain in the behind, it is a handful of servers versus hundreds, thousands. So part of it is institutional and just kind of implementing that policy. And that's sort of why I talked about uh, patch management earlier on is having a defined process and measuring against it is key to success in a lot of different areas. Knowing what you're supposed to do, then tracking uh, against it and having those metrics to see that, yes, I've succeeded. Or, hey, I've only patched 30, 40, 60, 70% of my servers here. Where's that gap and what can I do to shrink it? And I think part of the other issue that I, I see too, just you know, going out to trade shows, talking to different people, I always hear about the most sensational things. And it's funny, actually, this is reminding me of a, an old thing that we talked about many years ago, you know, the mountain lion in the shower, which is more scary. But I always hear people talking about the most new and sensational thing. You know, we heard about Spectre and others in NetSpectre um, attack for the chips in the system. So people get so fixated on those zero days and how I deal with this, you know, new crazy random thing that's come up. But in the article talked about that most of the time they got in from 
old legacy vulnerabilities that have been around forever and that have had patches out. So I think we get so caught up in the hype almost anymore that we, you know, miss the basics. I try to preach at least is not forgetting about the basics. It's so easy to focus on the sexy new tools and that can sort of be equated with, with almost everything. The star player gets all the notoriety, but no one thinks about the good defensive guy that does all the behind the scenes work or does the hustle work. You know, that guy never gets any praise. With security, there needs to be more emphasis on the little things. And I think, quite frankly, to play a little devil's advocate, why are we even focusing on pen testing? You know, why are companies still investing in pen testing? Security by design should be ingrained into any security program where I know if I deploy a system, it already has built into it a workflow that requires patching, that requires vulnerability assessment, that has our back, right? I know who's getting into this application, who's getting into this server, who's getting into this share by design. And I'm recertifying that on a regular basis. Or I get notified about someone attempting to tamper with what's already built in. Play devil's advocate in the reverse a little bit. And with the rise in SaaS technology and the move to the cloud and things like that, how do you see that type of approach to built-in security changing over time as large companies, you know, think the Microsofts, the Amazons, things like that, are trying to woo people away from traditional on-prem uh, services and uh, software um, that's fully in their control to the cloud-based ones? Do you think that type of security by design is going to be a big factor or not a factor? Or are people going to sign up because they like the service and don't care about the security? Funny, I, I spoke on a panel early this year with the CEO. Now he was the CEO. Now he's, now he's the CTO of a startup that their entire business prop was security by design. So they said, you can set policy that whenever you deploy an app, all your configurations are deployed automatically. Anything outside of policy, it just doesn't happen. Like it, it will fail essentially. And I think there's a trust factor with a lot of the larger organizations to move to this model, but I think it's twofold. I think there are some that are weighing the dollars and cents and saying, away with it, do it, let's go. And then there's others where they rely heavily upon legacy systems that there's going to be a huge hesitancy to just move everything into an AWS or, or into, into a three. 65. I honestly think the market shift is going to almost not give folks another option because Amazon, they're not monopolizing, but they have the assets to get the right people, the right minds to get this right. And I think if they can get it right, then I'm, I'm all for it. And as long as we're keeping those folks accountable, meaning that there are proper ways to ensure an S3 bucket leak doesn't happen, then let's do it. So let's talk about a company that has a really large budget to work with, Google. They recently declared victory with their USB-based security keys, and they haven't had anyone fished on their work account since 2017. And the larger selling point is that once the device is enrolled for a specific website that supports the security keys, the user no longer needs to enter the password on that site. And considering phishing is one of the biggest security problems, what are your thoughts on this new security method? Honestly, I liked it. I think the stats backed it up. Because it's a physical key, I do have some other questions. What if I lose it? What if it breaks? Tell me both sides of the coin. So I need everything out on the table because that article tells me all the good stuff. And while those are great things, and how do we handle the late adopters, right? So what do we do in a mixed environment? How, you know, how do we weigh the threats in terms of, is this rolled out? Does that make it across the board everywhere? Or are you still going to now have certain systems that you don't necessarily need that? And then if that's the case, then I yeah, have a problem with that because those are going to be the areas that potentially can get exploited. 
But in terms of just the technology, I thought it was really cool. The easier we can make security, the more it's going to be adopted by the general population. And I think that's that's incredibly key uh, here. Kind of at this point, nothing is uh, more straightforward to any random user off the street than, you know, plugging in a USB key to a computer. Not much you have to think about. It's really easy to do and it makes their life simple. So I think the adoption on that uh, could potentially be really, really high. Now, as Sean mentioned, I think that we do need to look at it. What's the fallback? What's the fail safe on it? If something goes wrong, you lose your key or a break, something like that. You know, how are we going to go about that recovery process? You can't have somebody locked out of their whole entire life if they lost their key or it got stolen. I mean, how many times have, have people lost keys or they lost their wallet? You know, you take it out, you set it down, you take something out of your pocket, you drop it. Well, then you do have to spend weeks or months calling every organization and pleading with them to unlock your account. So that's an important consideration to have, of course, too. So I, I think that is is very important in terms of the adoption. The other actual point that I just thought of too, now trying to steal somebody else's idea probably, is again, like Sean mentioned, is how do we deal with some of the legacy system? I also remember a time when I was talking to somebody about a project where they were trying to implement some type of security. Maybe it was, uh, you know, TLS or I, I forget what it was on a website, but they're like, well, we have this web statistic or traffic that from the browsers, 8% of our population is still using IE version 2 or something like some insanely outdated version of Internet Explorer. I'm like, well, we can't e enable any type of advanced encryption or force it because, you know, this 8% of our population is not going to be able to access whatever this web service is that we're providing. And that was purely a business decision at that point. They're like, well, this 8%, maybe they're going to give us money. So we don't, we're going to sacrifice security in terms of that, whatever that revenue is. And that's a tough conversation to have with the business and with finance people that what's the greater loss at that point, losing that potential 8% of the population with madly outdated technology or what it costs to face a breach. So that's always an interesting conversation too. And lastly, I want to tie our upcoming discussion back to Wendy Nather and Sean's suggestion of embedding security into our products because lately the promise and threat of biometrics algorithms and especially facial recognition software is hyped up as the next invasion in our society and some countries like China are already using facial recognition software with the general population. So to state and start with the obvious when our biometric data is compromised because unlike our usernames or passwords, it can't be reset. So I'm wondering what business problem are we solving with biometric software and what are some positive use cases for it? I'll give you the business problem. There's a chief marketing officer somewhere right now that's saying, I can't figure out why these people only buy sneakers around Christmas or why people only, why this person buys swimming trunks in the middle of December when he lives in New York City. Like I think, for example, a lot of the data from this biometric wave that we're going to see soon, I'm uh, my fear is the scale will tip more towards that side, and, and those weren't the greatest examples, more than they will new biometric tech averts criminal attack. As much as I'd, I'd like it to be that, and I think that's what they're, at least in the articles that we read, they want to position it as. But when you don't have a terrorist threat or a potential terrorist attack averted every other day, what are we doing with that data, right? And so that valuable data in the hands of someone who could potentially profit off of it then becomes very valuable to a company that can, that can exploit it. I don't want to be sold to every time I turn the corner or every time I open my, my phone and check an email, but you know, that 
that's where it's headed. The positive and what they're going to sell us on is that it's going to make security easy. And I just got done saying that is the easier we make security, the easier it is for people to adopt and get into those habits of uh, employing those best practices. You know, Mike likes the face ID or whatever it's called on Apple where it'll unlock your phone with just your face, you know, and his, he, you know, makes the point to say that, you know, anybody can use it. It's very simple. You don't have to be technical and they get the benefit of that additional security. So that's the positive. That's what they're going to sell us on in terms of biometrics or when we talked about it a couple weeks ago, uh, when people got upset at uh, Amazon for the recognition product, the first thing they did, you know, they didn't address any of the criticisms. Well, you can find lost children. They uh, did that emotional appeal there. And that is definitely a benefit. So that's how they're going to sell us. Now, personally, I'm terrified by biometrics. I think it's going to run out of control. And as Cindy mentioned, you can't change your fingerprints. Uh, you know, you can't change your DNA information. Collect this up. Now, I can think of other benefits, too. It would also help with, you know, verifying an identity, for example. You know, if you have a security key and a fingerprint, that's pretty hard to, to get around in some cases. So it's something you have and something that you are for, you know, multi-factor authentication. So it'll help reduce the risk of potential uh, identity theft and things like that. But I still think the effects of mass surveillance are maybe far outweigh the benefits. You know, the chilling effect on free speech and the ability to gather together in public. Agreed. Yeah. This reminds me of a few things. One of the things we just said about your, your fingerprint never changed reminds me of a, a Bruce Schneier quote, and I'm going to butcher it because I, I don't have it in front of me. But I remember on the, the show, Adam Rubin's Everything, he mentioned something about how bad security is the same every time. Good security is, is dynamic and it changes each time. That's the inherent problem with calling someone's fingerprint, you know, good security. I actually know somebody who a few years back wrote an article for Motherboard and they did an experiment with basically replaceable fingerprints. It was almost like wearing an, a Band-Aid that had a printed fingerprint uh, on it, but it wasn't like a normal human fingerprint. It was something more abstract, but if you put it on your, your phone and it, it would treat that as, yes, this is a human fingerprint, even though it looks nothing like one. And that was something you could, if necessary, replace, re-authenticate with a different one. So you don't have the one fixed fingerprint on your finger that you're stuck with the rest of your life. I thought that was a really unique uh, way of getting around it. Another thing that I've heard about, and I'm not sure if you guys have heard about this, there was an artist who did something at MoMA PS1 a few years back, basically something called CV Dazzle. It's anti-surveillance makeup. And the idea is, you know, there's certain points on the face that the software will use to identify you. And there was makeup design specifically designed to combat or confuse that software so that it looks basically like weird art on someone's face or bizarre avant-garde design, but it's meant to trick the surveillance system into not recognizing your face whatsoever. So I think it's interesting how even with something that seems to be foolproof is biometrics, you know, facial data, uh, fingerprint data, people are already working on ways to subvert it. So we will see down the line whether or not this is something that's more readily adopted, whether these countermeasures are effective or not. I still think it's fascinating regardless because, you know, who would ever think you'd find a way to, to trick um, a biometric scanner that's looking at your face and your eyes. It's going to be really interesting to see how this progresses. After all that, Chris, now I can't get the Mission Impossible theme song out of my head. I just, you know, picture myself having to, having to go into the office, pulling off my my mask, like putting on the fake fingerprints, things like that. <laughs> I'm just picturing Killian with uh, abstract, bizarre makeup on his face, trying to sneak out with some documents somewhere. I use fingerprint to unlock my phone. I, I'm not as far as facial recognition yet, but it's definitely easy to use. The debate is out there in terms of replication. I'm sure there's ways to get a fingerprint. The one thing I found interesting, though, is, is how we've sort of already fed into a lot of the databases for biometrics, maybe without even realizing it. I read a funny note recently about the measures Cleveland, Ohio was taking to ensure that people who renew their license at the DMV do not smile. I didn't know in certain states you can't smile in your driver's license picture. So at this Cleveland 
Cleveland DMV, uh, they were putting a photo of LeBron James in a Laker jersey under the camera. And that was their way, you know, to, <laughs> to ensure that people were not smiling. So here are some factors where there is data out there, biometric data at that, that can be used to be aggregate and profile us. And I, quite frankly, have already given a ton of it out there. Apple has it. The DMV has it. Voice recognition. Every bill collector or telephone company that I've ever worked with that sometimes they'll even say, hey, this call is being recorded for quality purposes. Yeah. And what else? I'm actually curious to know how mature is biometrics? We, we're talking about it as of late to deploy at an enterprise level and as a way to replace the norms for traditional security. But how, how mature is it really? How Because how long have we already been giving a lot of this out? You bring a really good point, Sean. I wanted to know there are other points of vulnerability in the data life cycle. So you mentioned the point of collection. There's also the point of analysis that your data can be really vulnerable um, when you're retaining the data that's really vulnerable. Where in the data life cycle do you think our biometric will be most vulnerable? Where I think it was Killian that says you're horrified. Where in the life cycle are you most Horrified. The easiest target would probably be the point of storage. Again, we'll go back to our talk about, you know, passwords and credentials and things like that. It has to be stored somewhere. You know, you think of all the voice recordings and things like that. Chances are some of that information is probably just getting transformed into, you know, files on a file server and stored somewhere, you know, away for analysis later on. That's always a, a persistent problem. And then the easiest way maybe to collect it is to uh, target endpoint devices where you input it before, you know, let's assume all the other processes and everything else are, are 100% bulletproof. Everything's encrypted end to end. What do you do? you get the endpoint. So if you can trick somebody to click or install a malicious app on their phone collecting it, insert yourself right in that process, you know, same with your your computer. Uh, it just depends on how fancy you want to get. Well, I'm, I'm realizing as I'm sitting here that biometrics might be something that you can not only steal or lift digitally, but also in person. I mean, you always see those things like spy movies where somebody will dust for prints and then they'll have a, a copy of it. And that's entirely possible. Somebody could follow you down the street. You, you see that you put your hand on a handrail once, some find a way to lift that. And then they have now something that is potentially identifiable and usable in any number of ways. Uh, same thing with, you know, if I'm not sure how good the scanners are, but, you know, facial recognition, iris scanners, that could be some way for people to undetected pick that up. And then again, if that's used for any number of services, products, you know, banking applications, etc., cetera, uh, they then have your authentication. So that kind of speaks even more to how dangerous it is to, to use something like that. You know, your, your password is not going to be on your t-shirt walking down the street. Your face will be exposed to everyone. It makes it a little more dangerous, I think. Actually, Chris, that reminds me of a, something I read a couple months ago, and I forget if we talked about it or not, but the fear was that with the high resolution of the phone cameras anymore that we have, people, you know, showing their hands or I think doing like the, the piece or whatever sign in pictures, they were worried that the resolution is such that they could pick up the actual fingerprint pattern on it too and potentially use that. I don't know if anything ever happened with that, but I remember reading that article and it's like, well, you know, keep packing more resolution into these things and making them portable. And then the sheer volume of pictures comes out, you know. The American Civil Liberties Union tested Amazon's facial recognition software. The ACLU, they ran all 535 members of Congress through the software to see if it matched any mugshots. And the software said that 28 members of Congress, they were identified as having a criminal background. And I just think that the ACLU was 
genius in targeting members of Congress, people who have the authority to regulate our data, regulate industries and people's livelihood. My first reaction was, I think it's great who, the, the data set they picked to compare it to, because the people who are going to be directly involved in legislating this sort of thing are, you know, it, it makes sense to see that if, if, if I were in Congress and I found out that my face matched multiple felons and that, you know, but this could potentially used to target me somehow, I'm pretty sure how I would vote if there were, a vote came up. I was a little concerned about that. You could see they were trying to distinguish a clear bias, definitely based on skin tone, and it would be devastating to be misidentified or the scary part was how, let's say, a, a law enforcement officer could already have a, a pre-influenced bias based on an inaccurate identification of facial recognition, where now they go about doing their duty and how they would have treated anyone with the same sort of, let's say, information ahead of time. But now because it's the wrong information, that person becomes a victim. So, you know, that I think they referenced the example of, and that was back in 2009. I did a little more research into that, the example of where the license plates readers, this wasn't so much facial recognition, but they misidentified a license plate and uh, it came up as a stolen car and they went and interrogated the persons and then the car wasn't stolen. Imagine that, create that 10 different times in other scenarios and how scary that could be. So the confidence better be 95 and up, and up as they mentioned. Or how about 100%? Think about it on the on the reverse side. Let's look at the false negative side. And Sean, I completely agree with your assessment there. But let's look at the false negatives. If we start to rely on this so much to tell us, hey, this person is someone we need to watch out for, do we become numb to it? Do we let our guard down, become less suspicious? You know, we pull over that car and says, oh, it's fine. It's not stolen, whatever. Will we start to treat that with less care in, in situations? Or will we have a kind of the false negative impression, if you don't know what I mean? Is it something that we can get ourselves into trouble in other ways? I think there, a, the AC use approach was completely right. Congress is going to feel the, the, the personal sting of this in this case and have to reckon with that. They can project themselves onto other normal people every day that might be subjected to this type of false identification. So I, I think it's a, it's a very valid test. And the other, the other question I'd have too is, you know, how does the algorithm actually work in the back? And I forget if we talked about this at some other point, but with that confidence score, as we raise it, it is more points of identification or, or how does it exactly work? How can we get inside that algorithm to to validate and verify that it's working as we anticipate it's working, or if it's, I believe it's based maybe to some point on um, artificial intelligence, how are we training that algorithm? Do we have a representative sample of data that we're training it on? Or are we going to introduce biases because we're only training it on one type of person, you know, male or female, something like that? We're always talking about ethics. We're always talking about how businesses need to come in first in order to monopolize the industry. We're always talking about how we need to include security. What is a security mindset that people need to cultivate? I think that, I mean, at least it's the way that I look at things is the first thing I do is I always try and be as pessimistic as possible. And I'm sure that shocks everybody who knows me. But, you know, when I start looking at something, my first thought is what can go wrong when the system breaks, because it's always going to break in some way, what's going to happen? And then kind of work backwards. You know, what's what's that worst case scenario where the security fails, or the controls fail, or, you know, the wheels fall off? You know, what's the worst that can happen and how can I kind of work backwards from that and integrate uh, security into the process going forward? So at the design phase, here's the goal that I want to accomplish. I want to make this great service to share whatever. What's the downside and how can I work backwards to try and address that as I build it and design it so it's built right in? I, I think it's important to remember that you're only as strong as your weakest link. I think the weakest link needs to be identified as we see a lot of large organizations 
be brought down to their knees because of something that at the end of the day could have easily been averted, a database using a password called admin. And I think identifying the weakest link can be done at all verticals of all sizes. And if, if the weakest link can now be rectified, then organizations have to make the necessary steps to do that, whatever that weak link is. And then there's ways to identify what those weak links are. That's the beauty of today's security landscape from a vendor side of the scope, from a services side of the scope. I think there are people that want to help, but it, you have to identify you know, the areas that need to be improved. One of the, the things that I would say to, to people who are, who are trying to improve their security posture is remember that not everyone has the same knowledge that you do. I've seen stuff designed in the past in ways that make sense for technical workers, but people who are, you know, and we're in a world now where people who are even you know, not IT or, or, or security people are in contact with devices and software each day that could be compromised to to any, any you know, length and lots of damage can be caused. caused. Really, the point is ensure that the people who you need to be in touch with this kind of stuff. Have the knowledge they need to use it properly. Be open to sharing that knowledge. I know, you know, in the past it's, it's been sort of a, a line drawn between the technicals and the non-technicals. Try and make that more of a gradient. Try and be more communicative. And if you're designing something, make sure it's designed with people in mind who might not have that knowledge set so that they can at least learn something from it and improve their practices as well. Thanks to Sean Campbell, Chris Kaiser, Killian Engler, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our banter, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell others about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like this one. Have a good one. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.